There's a verse in Mark's gospel in chapter 14, verse 51, it says this. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized Jesus, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Sounds like a good verse to preach a sermon on, right? Um, Several weeks ago, I preached a sermon in which I talked about how I never buy my wife flowers. Anybody remember that one? I got more feedback on that sermon than most any I've preached. (laughs) And um, about a week or or two later, um, one of the people in the church came uh, came to me and said, listen, I I buy um, uh, landscaping products for a living, and I just bought a flower closeout at a nursery. So I have a, basically two truckloads of plantable flowers, some perennials, some annuals, and I've got them really cheap. If you want, I'll just bring them all to your house, and we can give them all to your wife at once. It'll be like that, like big pile of flowers you were talking about. That's just nutty. And um, so I was like, that sounds good to me. I have the gift of receiving. So, um, <coughs> so I wanted it to be a surprise for Lexi, right? And so, um, and pr- probably the biggest, like, don't, besides, you know, have an affair, I guess, in our marriages. You just don't, we just don't lie to each other. Like, there, I have, I don't have any lies that I have to, like, keep track of, right? Because it's just too much energy, and besides, it's just like, I just can't, I just need truth, okay? Like, even if you're going to tell me I'm a big dork, just tell me the truth, okay? So, um, I'm not very good at lying to my wife, even to, like, figure out how to make a surprise work. So, I, I told her, I said, listen, um, I need to, I need the house, for a couple of hours on Thursday or whatever it was. And she's like, well, I'm going to be out anyway. I was like, okay, don't come home because I just need the house to myself. And um, I'm going to be studying because I was going to study until he got there. And whatever. So, so I get there. He comes that day. We start unloading all the stuff. I'm going to, we're getting to get ready to arrange it all so that when she comes, she's just totally floored. And my wife pulls in the driveway. <laughs> Whoop. Abby forgot her shoes. And there's just, there's flowers everywhere. There's this big truck in the driveway. This friend's helping me stuff out. And I'm just like... (laughs) I'm never going to try to be romantic again. Ever. (laughs) It's over. (laughs) Right? I was just really frustrated, you know? Because she said she would not be there. But she figured, well, he's just going to be studying. She can just run in and get her shoes and come right back out. I'm not going to the next thing without shoes. And for some reason, it's okay for my kids to get in the car without shoes on. (laughs) You can move us north, but you can't get the redneck out of the kids. (laughs) You know? We're trying to explain to them. Kids, here you have to wear shoes even to Walmart. You know? Daddy has to put a shirt on to go to work here. It's just crazy expensive. But okay, so the reason Alexi just like foiled the whole plan and just stepped in the middle of it and all that stuff is because she didn't know what I was doing. And if, if she, because she didn't know what I was doing, she didn't know what I was doing. So she couldn't think accordingly, respond accordingly, act accordingly, whatever, feel accordingly, because she didn't get it. Now, um, the exact same thing is true of God, except he has told us what he's doing, okay? But the first thing we've got to get in our minds about how God works is that if you don't know what God is doing, you aren't going to know what God is doing, okay? 
I don't know if that's clever enough for you to be amused, but it's true, okay? That if you don't know what God is doing, you're not going to know what God is doing. And what that means is all of the emotional, actional, whatever advantages that come from moving with the stream of God's will in your life aren't going to be there. And so if you don't know what God is doing, you can't You can't go with that stuff, and so you'll be fighting against it. It'll be corrosive to your emotions. There's all kinds of fallout that comes from not knowing what God is doing, but still trying to believe in God. It's a very uncomfortable place to be. If you believe in God and believe in Jesus and want to be Christian and so forth, but are not in tune with God's will and his actual activity in the world, it creates this dichotomy running in two directions that will tear you apart. And will ultimately lead to you either falling into this vague religious sentimentality because nothing you think God should do, he does. Therefore, you can't hold any doctrines because the minute you say God is one way, not another, it doesn't seem to work out with what's happening. So you let the doctrine go and eventually you're just left with sort of this vague sentimentality or you're bold and modern and you just pitch it and become an atheist or something like that, right? That is the inevitable end if you cannot unite your belief in Jesus— with what God has said he's actually doing so that you can actually make sense of what the heck is going on around you. Can I say heck? Okay. So, <clears throat> so what I want to, one of the things I want to talk about this morning, and I'll tell you why this relates to Mark in just a minute, is that one of the most pervasive ideas among modern Christians is the idea that the institutional church is at best an unfortunate addition and at worst a major liability to Christian faith. Many, many people, and many of them who come to church, see the church as a corruption of true spirituality and as an unnecessary complication to the simple faith Jesus called people to have. The abuse and boredom that people have suffered at its hands only confirms our distaste for it. Add to this our cultural ideas of free consumption, and it's little wonder that many Christians consider themselves committed to Jesus, but not the church. And certainly, if they, and, and many, they'll say that they're generally committed to the universal church, but not deeply to a local church. And, and now that transportation is easy, and there's often multiple cool churches in one city, they, we'll just go to this church one Sunday, and that church another Sunday, and oh the, oh, the senior pastor's not speaking there this Sunday, so we'll just go to that other church for this Sunday, and we'll just kind of move around. Why not? Right? Do that with restaurants. What's wrong with that? I've had people on my staff who said that. What's wrong with that? And I'm not going to get into that this morning. All I'm going to say is that is a symptom of how we feel about the church. Now, the Gospel of Mark says virtually nothing about the local church. It didn't exist yet, right? But the Gospel of Mark was written to the local church by a churchman who spent his life for God's glory in the building of the church on three or maybe four continents, the evangelist Mark. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes here is I want to tell you Mark's story. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about the author for a minute here. I want to take you, because most people have never pieced together the New Testament history with Mark's story. So I think if you've been a Christian for 40 years, or if you're not even a Christian, I think it might be equally interesting, and I want to draw some 
um, some applications out of specifically in relationship to the local church and small group life so that I can pitch at the end that you need to sign up for a small group. <laughs> Hope that's transparent enough. Okay. Now, before I get into Mark, I need to give you a little background. Unless I say otherwise, most of what I'm going to be telling you, I get, I'm getting from the book of Acts, okay? Which is after the, the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's the fifth book of the New Testament, okay? So the way the book of Acts starts off is Jesus says to this little band of 120 disciples that, that John was talking about earlier, um, I'm going to leave and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and then in the north in Samaria and then outward from there until the very ends of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven, and they're waiting around. Then the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2, and Peter stands up and he preaches, and 3,000 people get saved, right? And so all the, the church, that fast goes from 120 to 3,000, okay? And then a little more ministry happens, and the church just spends 5,000 men. Now they're just, they're just counting men, because they're just counting households now, because they can't even keep track of how many people there are. They just have no idea, because you've got servants and wives and children and who knows what, right? And so, well, there's 5,000 men. Um, and then um, it's big enough where they, where they realize they have to have structure. Now, he, here's the first problem with hating organized religion. If the fundamental ethic of, that, of your religion is love between people, therefore you have to get people together and you're doing something that happens between people, you've got to have some organization. You can't take two friends out to a restaurant without somebody exerting some leadership, right? Somebody's got to go, I don't like chilies. Or it's three people. I mean, my wife and I, we need somebody to exert leadership in how we do stuff just in our family. So the, the minute you get more than one person, you need leadership. You already have an organization. The minute you have leadership, you have organization. Boom. That's it. You have an organized religion. The, I mean, the only way Christianity—there's no way Christianity could not be an organized religion. Okay? I'm, I'm, it's just a fact. Because the central ethic of Christianity is love between one another's. And God working a heart of love through faith and hope and doing that. If, if it was like personal realization or something else, then you could have a religion that wasn't gathered and therefore not institutional. And there are some religions like that. Christianity can never be that. Because it's a one another, it's a together, it's a loving people thing and there's got to be multiple people. Right? So anyway, you got all these people together, right? And so the apostles get, there's a little bit of persecution, but mostly the church is growing. But the church is not growing very much outside of Jerusalem. I mean, this is a Jerusalem movement so far. And the church isn't moving out from there. Remember what Jesus said they were going to do? They were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. And then in Judea, and, I mean— Right? So there's this guy named Stephen. So they, they, because the church needs some organization, right? Because there was, there was an accusation of racism in how food was being distributed to widows. And the apostles were like, we can't have, we can't have racism. So they appointed six people, all the men in this case, at least. And they said, you guys, they found people who knew God, were full of the Holy Spirit, and were trustworthy among all the people, and they were wise. And they said, listen, you need to sort this out, because we have to preach, but we can't have racism in how we're distributing food to widows. So fix it. So they appoint these guys, these deacons, to go do that. Now, one of these deacons is a guy named Stephen. And Stephen is also a preacher. And he cannot keep his mouth shut about Jesus. And so as the persecution is growing, some people accuse Stephen of blasphemy, which he didn't commit, but he gets pulled in front of the Sanhedrin. And they sort of bait him. They're like, listen, what's going on? And Stephen's like, okay, listen, you want to know? I'm going to tell you. And so this whole chapter— in acts of him just, just telling the Sanhedrin what for 
about Jesus. And he starts with, he goes back to like Abraham. He's like way back, and they're like, you're going to take us back to Abraham? You know, and Stephen goes through Abraham, and he goes through, and he's like, he, you know, and, and so then, then he says, you know, you guys just, and then the Messiah comes, and then you killed him. And they're like, oh no, you didn't just say that. So then they stone him to death. They stone him to death. Now, now you'll notice that in the Gospels, remember that Jesus had to be taken to Pilate because the Jews didn't have the right to execute people. So how come eight pages later they can? Well, here's what happened. Um, Pilate failed and was called back to Rome. And there was a period of time in early Acts where there was no Roman proconsul in Judea. And when there was no Roman proconsul in Judea, there was no Roman proconsul in Judea. And there's this whole saying about cats playing when people are away. There weren't, there were, the Roman law didn't totally fall apart, but it was not being enforced like there would be a proconsul. And so after that happened, it was then, and then everybody's like, hey, nobody's going to stop us from killing these Christians. And so this very, fairly short, but fairly intense persecution breaks out. And this guy named Saul, who would later be Paul, was one of the leaders of it. But here's what it says explicitly. It says that it pushed all the Christians northward into Judea and into Samaria and even further north than that. And it says they just, you know, they just ended up telling people about Jesus wherever they went. And then some of them figured out that maybe non-Jews would be interested. There's a novel idea, right? And so they went and they started talking to Greeks, which is, Greek is just code for non-Jew, right? And so, and those people started believing. And so now people started believing all over the place, specifically this one place, Antioch. Now, let me backtrack just a little bit. Um, while, things, while things were going well in the north, as the gospel spread northwards, things just got worse and worse in Jerusalem. First, the church got pushed out. There were very few um, Christians left in Jerusalem, um, except for a number of the apostles. But it, it, it literally says in Acts, all that was left in Jerusalem were the apostles. And um, about this time, also, a, a pretty serious famine broke out in Judea. Prices of food went way up. People were starving. And Mark's mother, Mary, was apparently a widow. Because in Acts, um, there's no reference to his father, and the house is said to be owned by Mary. So his, Mark's mother, John Mark's mother, named Mary, um, is probably a widow. And, there's, and there is a small group that meets in her house. And so Mary is opening her home, and she's apparently relatively wealthy because she has a servant— and she's got some stuff like that. And so there's people coming in her house, and they're, they're starting to get from poor to starving. Now, meanwhile, Herod Antipas, who is the half-Jew—he's sort of like the, the, the guy the Romans let act like he owns the place, right? He's the king of this area—decides um, that, if, well, if we can kill Stephen, maybe we can kill the apostles, and the Jews that I'm trying to rule over who hate my guts would really like that. Because see, the Jews really hated Herod Antipas. Because they hated his father Herod, and he was, Herod Antipas was just as bad. And so he seizes James, one of the three most important disciples, John, James, and Peter. And he, he has him beheaded publicly. And the, and the leadership of the people who hated, hated the Christians, they thought that was fantastic. And it says in Acts, well, when, when Herod found out they really liked that, he just arrested Peter too. And he was going to hold him, he was going to hold him over the weekend because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was Passover. He's just going to hold him over the weekend, then have the public trial and behead Peter too. And gosh, that win himself some more favor. I mean, if he, he could kill all 12 of them. I mean, just think, just think how things would be going then. So, so think about this. 
Mark goes to small group on Thursday night, okay? At his mom's house, all right? There's people there. Apparently, normally Peter is there. And he's not, okay? Now, now just before this happened, um, Mark had sort of a big brother figure who was a cousin of his who lived in Jerusalem who was a really even-keeled guy, Okay, he was the sort of guy that in conflict, he kept his head, he, he didn't play, he, he didn't blow up at people, he was really good at encouraging folks. In fact, his name meant son of encouragement, Barnabas. And he was in Jerusalem, and he was Mark's cousin. And so, even though all this stuff was going bad, Mark still had this kind of like older brother, cousin figure that was near that, you know, but what happened is when the church grew in, in Antioch with a bunch of Greeks, the apostles were like, we need to send somebody up there who knows what's going on. But we need to send somebody who can handle a situation. So who'd they pick? They picked Barnabas. Now, that's good for the church in Antioch, but think about Mark. He's stuck in Jerusalem with virtually no church left, with a famine breaking out, with a widow mom, and his older cousin Barnabas is now getting sent 350 miles away. James gets his head chopped off, and now Peter's in prison so he can get killed after the weekend, and it's time to go to small group. Right? I mean, you can imagine how he was feeling. Right? I mean, wh why would God start this whole thing just to let them all die a couple years later? You know, what is God doing? Why, why are things—I mean, what gives? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. But one of the things that's interesting about, <clears throat> about this section—sorry, we should go through some—let's do some slides. That's the, that was the institutional church. Now that's Antioch. He went 325 miles away, his, his buddy. All right. This is what it says in the beginning of Acts It was about that time King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. And then it says this right after that. And don't miss this. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So Mark, he doesn't show up because it's his house. There's a small group at his house that his mom is putting on. Peter's in prison. He's going to die after the weekend. All this stuff is going south. And they don't know what they're going to do. I mean, you can imagine a widow mother who has enough means to have a house with a servant, but there's 20, 50 people meeting in their house that don't know how they're going to eat for the next two months, right? And, um, and there's no leadership. I mean, this is what Peter used to lead here. He's in prison. Barnabas is gone. I mean, what's Mark? 20 maybe? He's the same age as John probably. He's probably the young man that ran away, right? And Mark... Um, so what do they do? I mean, I don't know who started. I don't know if it was Mary or Mark or who, who was there. Bartholomew, for all we know, right? And he goes, listen, it's time to pray. <laughs> We're we don't, and, and listen, this is Peter's small group. Where do you think they're coming next to arrest and kill people? This house. That's why a few verses later it says the door was locked when somebody knocks on it. 
So they don't know any minute somebody could come in that house and drag them all off. Who knows? But the church got together and they said, we need to, let's pray. We believe, yeah, all this stuff is going bad. We believe in God's power. The gospel is going forward in the world. Barnabas is in Antioch with Greeks who believe in Jesus. I mean, let's just pray. And so they prayed. Now, I just don't think we do that. <laughs> do you? When was the last time? And see, they didn't say they prayed in their hearts when they read the text on their Blackberry. It said that the church got together and they prayed together. Right? That's, I mean, that's what it says. And they prayed earnestly and they prayed specifically for Peter. Now, um, the cool thing about what happens right after this is there's three things that happen all in chapter 12 that radically change the situation. And the thing that's kind of neat about all of them is they are all just totally unhoped for. Uh, they are just, they're just beyond what you could, you fr frankly, they probably thought would happen. Um, in a few verses from here, an angel just shows up and rescues Peter out of prison. So there's 16 guards. They're in cohorts of like four. I mean, these are soldiers, right? And Peter's in prison. And this angel just strolls in. Hey, we're going to get you out of here. So just, get, they're all going to still stay sleeping. And we're just going to leave. And I mean, it was so surreal. Peter thought he was having a vision. He thought he was asleep. Figured he'd still die in two days. He's, I'm, just, I'm just having a dream. Oh, so this nice. Hi, angel. You know, and they all they just walk out. And then they get out in the street and the angel just disappears. And you know, it's kind of chilly. And he's sort of looking around. He's like, I think I'm really awake. You know, and he just, he realizes, I mean, he said, it's literally says he like comes to himself. And once he realizes he's awake, he, he goes straight to this house. And he knocks on the door and he's like, hey, it's Peter. And they're like, oh. They don't even open the door because they're so surprised. And then finally he's like, hello, it's, P it's Peter. And they let him in and everybody just flips out that he's alive. And he's like, no, I think I'm going to skip town. So, so Peter skips town, which, which, think about that. If you read Acts closely, where does he go? He goes to Judea. There, there wasn't an apostle in Judea yet. The church had spread up there. People were believing there were Christians, but there was no leadership. Think how cool that is. So Peter gets arrested. The church prays for him. Their faith gets built by Peter's release, but he has to skip town. So he goes to a place that doesn't have leadership. So the church in Judea can be strengthened. I mean, that is slick. That's pretty slick, God, right? Okay, so then the next thing that happens is Herod just dies. He goes on a trip to a city of people he, he was having a political conflict with, and he gives a speech, and they're like, they're like, you're awesome! You're like a god! And he's like, okay. And, um, and it says in, in Acts that because he didn't go, I'm not a god. God struck him down with this very painful— it says he was eaten by worms. So that's nice, isn't it? Now, that was pretty cool, but, don't, but if you read chapter, chapter 13 um, or 12 closely, there's another thing that happens. Because in Antioch, 350 miles away, this guy named, named Agabus, who's like, he has like a prophetic gift, he says— he gets up in church one Sunday or whenever they meet and he goes, hey, um, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that there's, there's a major famine developing in Judea right now. Those people are, those people are gonna starve. And um, Barnabas is there. He, he's from Judea, right? His, his cousin and his 
aunt live in Jerusalem. And so um, the, the leaders, which is this very, very diverse, very non-Jewish cosmopolitan church, they get up and they say, we need to send them a pile of money. Right? That's pretty funny, right? Let's just send them a pile of money. So all these people, non-Jews, right? They just put together this whole pile of money to send to these Jewish people they've never met because some prophet told them there was a famine. So they just opened the coffers, put a bunch of pile of money, and then Barnabas and uh, Paul, they go on back to Jerusalem with a pile of money. So pretty soon after this, it's, I mean, in, in the passage, it's right with all this stuff. They're just like, well, you know, Herod's dead and Peter's alive, and, but there's all these starving people. All of a sudden, Barnabas is like, hey, we got some money! <laughs> And it's all, and Luke puts it all right there together in chapter 12 to focus our attention on how God made, let it be worse, he 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 let it be worse, and then right at the breaking point, he provides in three ways that fast. So that if you knew what God was doing, and Luke does, Luke knows Jesus said he was going to build his church and the gates of hell couldn't stand against it, and they were going to be his witnesses throughout the world, and you look at all the things that happened, and you go, that's, that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. The church was built, and then it was scattered, and then leadership was dispersed, and then provision that was needed for this church that was scattered came from where it was scattered to, so that there was love between Jews and Gentiles, which was going to be necessary, because in three chapters, the biggest controversy of the early church is going to come down about whether or not Greeks have to be like Jews to be Christians. It is sublime. The providence. But but Mark didn't get to see all that. He didn't see all that in real time. Luke's putting all this together 20 years later. Hearing from this person, hearing from this person, hearing from that person, hanging out with Mark in Rome. And he's, he's putting it all together. So he's interpreting what's all happened, knowing what God is doing. Starting with Jesus saying, I'm going to do this, right? <clears throat> and I think, I mean, ask yourself, what would, what would have happened to your faith with all that happening? Because if you didn't know what God was doing, you wouldn't have known what God was doing. And what would that have done to you emotionally? You would have convinced yourself God was abandoning you, or he didn't care, or he wasn't going to take care of you. If you didn't realize, if you didn't have in the core of your being, not just that God exists, but what God is doing. If you didn't have a big enough picture to know that Christ was building his church through the Spirit— through these providential means that created hardships, but through them created friendships, you would not, you wouldn't be able to emotionally hang with it. And even though, listen, I, I want to give all kinds of comforting words if you're hurting, but here's one of the reasons why we end up hurting inside. You can have a lot of pain on the outside and still be, be at peace on the inside. One of the reasons why oftentimes there's unnecessary turmoil inside of us is because we don't know what God is doing. And so we don't know what God is doing, and so we have all kinds of emotional turmoil. Is he really there? Does he really care about me? Is he really listening? Am I on his radar? What is, what's going to happen to me? I'll tell you what the effect on Mark was. <clears throat> Mark got in the ministry. That's what happened. He became a missionary. 
Festiv all comes down. Saul and Barnabas are going back to Antioch after they brought the money, and they take Mark with them. Mark's like, I'm ready to go. Let's go. So he goes up to Antioch. Now he'd heard about Antioch, but he'd never been there. I mean, think about how his world got expanded. He shows up, and instead of having like five Jews with like payas and everything as the elders of the church, he shows up. There's this like black guy from North Africa. There's this no kidding Roman from Cyrene. There's Paul, who's like a Jew, Jew, Jew. I mean, you've got these like, they're totally different. And you know, there's like these Africans coming in and hugging the guys with like yarmulkes. And it's like, he's like, what? The, where does this happen? This is insane. And then, and then God comes and sends the Jews out. He comes in, and he's like, Barnabas and Paul, send them out. They're going to go to other places. So the church sets aside Paul and Barnabas for the ministry because these other guys have it under control. And the, the gospel's got to go to Asia or modern-day Turkey. And so Paul and Barnabas are going. So Mark just goes too. Let's be missionaries. That's never been done before, but let's try it. So they, they go to their ancestral home. Barnabas and Mark, their families are from Cyprus. So they go there first. So they go to Cyprus. They preach all the way through. So there's like a magician that get, like fights against them. And there's people believing and people want to kill them. And then they get to South Turkey and they're kind of going along. And um, things are going kind of well, but there's also kind of persecution. And then Mark finds something out. And we don't know exactly what it is, but he leaves. And he doesn't go back to Antioch. He goes back to Jerusalem. Now, if you already have in your cooker that he's got a widow mom in Jerusalem, you don't, who, knows what, who knows what's going on? You know, Paul's probably saying stuff like, hey, Jesus said that anybody who doesn't hate their father and mother on my side, you know, and he's just like, dude, I'm going, I'm going back. I don't know what's wrong with her. I gotta go home. I'll, you know, I'll be back. And so they, Mark leaves. And then over the next several years, he sees, um, he sees the first great um, conflict in the church over Jews and Gentiles happen in Jerusalem. He runs back into Paul and Barnabas, who've come back for this controversy to talk about how Gentiles really can believe and don't have to be just like Jews and, and keep the whole law. And then um, Barnabas gets to reconnect with Mark and wants to take him on the next missionary journey. Paul says, no way. Now think about that. How many people do you know, how many of you don't like church because you got rejected by somebody at church? Look at Mark. I mean, he may have gone home to take care, to, to figure out what was going on with his widowed mother, and Paul doesn't want anything to do with him. One of the most important leaders and most well-known missionaries of the church. Mark just went with another person. <laughs> he just got involved in a different ministry. That's all. But he kept going. But one of the things we know about how these things turn out is um, in Acts um, 15, where Paul and Barnabas have their argument about whether or not Mark can go. That's the last we hear about Barnabas. I have no idea what happened to him. He died somewhere along the way. Um, but one of the things we do know about what happened, there's so much we don't. Wouldn't it be great if there was like a real chronicle that we really knew? We'd probably treat it like the Bible it would be good for us probably, but I'd love to read it. Um, but we know that Paul and Mark get back together. Barnabas hangs with him. Mark becomes a new kind of man. He, be, he, he toughens up a little bit. He, he gets focused. And what we find out is that Mark, is that Paul in the end finds him usable. And lots of times you hear about um, that verse in 2 Timothy where, where Paul says to Timothy, come to Rome and bring Mark because he's useful to me in my ministry. And we kind of think like sentimentally, oh, isn't that sweet? You know, Jesus loves quitters, right? And Paul, no, 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 no. Y yes, Jesus loves quitters. Okay, I, absolutely true. Okay, Jesus loves quitters. Um, and I, listen, I've teared up in a sermon with a preacher talking about that verse. Okay, so Jesus loves quitters. But that's not what Paul was thinking. 
Paul was, you know why Paul wrote that in, for, in 2 Timothy? Because he was about to die. That's why he wrote that in 2 Timothy. And he knew if he didn't win Rome, he could not win the Roman Empire. He knew that. He knew that if the church did not win the cities, they could not win the empire. Rome was the heart of the empire. The church had to win the city, and he was going to die, and he figured it wouldn't be long before Peter was going to die, and they needed more quality men ready to die coming to Rome because the work had got, had to be done. And Nero was getting a little crazy. And so Paul, knowing that Nero was insane— and at any moment could kill just any—he invites Timothy, and he says, bring Mark too, because he'll be useful. And we know that Paul sent him on at least two other missionary um, events. He, he, not, he not only used him again, but he deployed him to places he couldn't go because he needed somebody strong and trustworthy to do it. Mark developed until in the end, he was in Rome with Peter around the time of his death, finishing up the gospel of Mark that he worked through with Luke when he was in Rome with him and worked through probably with Peter when he was in Rome with him. Okay, so quick, quick applications. Um, to know what God is doing, you're going to have to know what God is doing. Or you are going to go through an enormous amount of emotional turmoil in your life wondering why God isn't doing things more agreeable with what you want. It's just a fact. Um, if, if you think that your agenda of things of what you want to do is God's first priority when God reveals through his providential work that it is nowhere near his first priority, it's going to upset you. And um, that's not fun. And it is extremely corrosive to the faith that's meant to give you hope. Your, your faith is meant to give you hope when things like that happen. And instead, your faith will be your biggest liability because on top of losing your spouse or your job or whatever, you'll be losing your faith and your mind, which generally isn't helpful. Now, the thing that God is doing, what he says in scripture he is doing during this period of cosmic history is he is building his church. And listen, I try to say that with as little self-importance because I'm a pastor as I can. I don't know what to do about that. Um, I believe that God works in, in lots of other things too, but the primary thing in the New Testament God's saying he's building is he's redeeming individual human beings and binding them together in a family that he calls the church that exists in local churches of real people. And therefore, it is a fundamental lie to yourself to believe that you believe in Jesus but aren't connected to a local church or that you even love the church universal but it won't be connected to a local church. It just doesn't work. One of the things I think Mark understood and I think we really need to understand is, is that you've got to think in the right order. So the first premise is Christ is risen and will build his church in the world among all peoples. The second premise is church stinks. Okay? That's the second premise. I was hurt. I've been bored. I don't want to go there. Blah, 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 blah. That's premise number two, not premise number one. Okay? So what you got to do then with those two premises, if that's how you feel, is you got to figure out how to do this in a way that doesn't do this. It's not rocket science. Okay? It's, it's not rocket science. You, we got to figure out how to be the church and do church and love one another and be a family and be brothers and sisters and 
learn scripture and live the gospel in, in a way that isn't abusive and isn't insanely boring and irrelevant. This can be done. But see, if you get that reversed, if you think it's all about you and you get this as premise one, I've been hurt. I've been, you know, I've been hurt by church. I've been abused by people. I've been rejected by people who should have given me marshmallows. And then, you know, maybe God could be relatively somehow interested in the local church. You're, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the Church of St. Mattress and, you know, you're just not going to, you're not going to worry about it. Or you're going to church hop or church shop or, you know, you just, you're not going to say, and here's why, here's why this is important. Because one of the reasons why the church, the local church of real people matters is because you cannot really engage in the sort of love Jesus is talking about with any kind of looseness of relationship. It doesn't work. It's, it's, it's not entirely honest. You have to be committed long-term to a specific group of extremely imperfect, real, concrete people. It's much, it's much easier to declare on Facebook that you love humanity. It's much harder to actually love your neighbor. And if we miss that, we miss one of the great truths, and that is, is that the gospel brings friendship through hardship. Okay. okay. Church should be longer. Um, gospel brings friendship through hardship. I mean, here, here's the issue. Um, when Jesus told us to love each other, he meant for us to love each other like he loved his disciples. He meant for us to form friendships that were so strong, so unifying, that it was not at all a stretch to use the metaphor of family. In fact, there's an old—I don't know if you know this church has kind of a Baptist heritage. There's an old— Baptist or fundamentalist or in some ways evangelical church, where you're supposed to call each other brother and sister. Have you ever been to a church that did that? Well, brother Nick. You know, and you know, most of the time now we're kind of like, really? You're going to call me brother Nick? Okay, you know. As long as you don't call me Barney, you know. And, um, you know, and so Sister Alice, I just, that was just such a nice hat you had on last week. I mean, I mean, people, but there's a reason why, there was a reason why that tradition began to constantly remind us that that is the nature of our relatedness to each other in Christ. Our Father, through our theological brother, the man Jesus Christ, has made us all children and heirs together, fundamentally, concretely brothers and sisters, to be friends together in love and companionship in a way that, heart, that all the hardships we face builds the friendships, makes us stronger, helps us enjoy this more deeply. Because that kind of friendship is cherished in hardship. It, it, and it relieves hardship. And it is, it is because we have lost our doctrine of friendship— that we don't believe the concrete local church is that important. That's the reason. Which is, of course, mind-blowing. That we could, we really could, not even really knowing it, lose our conception of what friendship is really meant to be. And that's why 
That, listen, that's why the church has programs, okay? If we, and I don't think there's gonna be a lot of programs in heaven because we're all gonna just naturally do what we're supposed to do. The reason we have programs is because we're all problem people. See, if we, if we don't have a welcome ministry, you're not gonna say hi to each other. Sorry, that's why we have one, okay? We found some people who would say hi to other people. So we made a ministry so people would say hi. You know? Is it, you know, we have adult Bible fellowships. Why? Because the fact is most, most of us don't study the Bible on our own. Just don't. So we have a program where you go study the Bible with other people, right? Why do we have a prayer meeting? Well, a prayer meeting because we're supposed to pray together. But I mean, how often do you call up eight or nine of your friends? Hey, come over Thursday. We'll eat. We'll have pray together for like an hour after dinner. I mean, maybe two people have ever done that in here. So we have what? So we have a prayer meeting, Right? Do we teach our kids the scriptures? Most of us don't systematically. So we have a children's ministry to try to make up for what we don't do at home. Right? We have all this stuff. Why? Because you and I are terrible at this stuff. And so guess what? We have a small groups ministry. (laughs) Why? Because in our cultural moment, we have lost our identity as, as people of friendship. That the most important thing is the web we find ourselves in. That, that we drop things immediately to go help other people. We ditch our agenda at a moment's notice. We create margin in our life because other people are going to need that margin from us. And one of the, the, the funnest things we get to do is to go and help people randomly or helpfully or whatever when they need it. That we're con- so that— so that there isn't need, so that it relieves people's hardships, so that they can enjoy each other in a relationship. And guess what? We don't do it. We don't do it. So guess what we get to have? A program or an organization or something that helps us do it. So the way it functions is I stand up here and I say, listen, in order for us to really do this, listen, I don't care about programs. You want to start another program? Kidding me? That's what I need. I need more details to think about during the week. I was just, I was sitting around going, you know what I need? I need more details to think about. We have it because there is a truth that we must embody together. We must embody together. You don't necessarily have to say, well, brother, but that's how you got to feel about him, Okay. All of these men and women here. And so we, we got to have a small group ministry. You need to sign up and be in a small group. You need to put your lives weaved together with other people so that you can build the kinds of spiritual friendships and love that can work. Where we can live out the basic building block of Christian faith, which is loving each other. Because God is building his church. He's building it And he is sustaining it through hardships, through the friendships he creates so that it can spread throughout the world. And if you get that, then you'll know what God is doing because you'll know what God is doing, right? And it won't seem so weird how God is functioning in the world. And you'll see what he's doing because you'll be part of it. I mean, one of the reasons, like, how many of you know God was working yesterday powerfully in Madison? You know why? You might not know. You weren't there. We drove 300 international students around the city for two hours. Well, Alexi and I made five new Indian friends. We're taking them rock climbing this week at Devil's Lake. One of them's terrified. (laughs) 
They all met on Facebook when they got in the, mechanic, in the uh, electrical engineering program here. We drove around for two hours. They Facebooked us. We faced, they're, they're amazed that Lexi's killed an alligator. And listen, we, we just made five new friends that aren't Christians from India. And lots of other Christians drove and did the same thing and befriended and started a relationship with 250 to 300 international students who will then scatter all over the world in a couple of years. And I could sense God working in our van last, yesterday because I was there. I was there. And a number of you were there. And I'm, what I'm saying is, is that when you know what God is doing, you get involved in what God is doing, you get to see what God is doing, and it builds your faith even in hard times. And you build friendships, and it's very rich. So take out that piece of paper and put a check mark on it. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> God, um, we pray that you would help us um, see through the, the experience and ministry of Mark, the evangelist, that we were meant to be bound together with others in love and fellowship, that we were meant to see each other as brothers, that our hardships can be greatly lessened um, through friendships that you want to bind us together and teach us how to love each other concretely with real people in real places. Father, um, help us to see how central that is to who, and what, who you are and what you're doing, Lord. And help us to be a people of community and friendship and fellowship and brotherhood and sisterhood. Help us to see ourselves um, truly as family with each other. We pray in Christ's name, amen.